Hello, everyone, and welcome to another informative episode of the Florida Business Forum podcast. Let's open the Florida Business Forum floodgates and let the information begin to flow. Here's your Florida Business Forum information guru and anchorman, Sam Yates. We are back on the topic of the Surfside Collapse. As you may recall in a previous episode, we focused on that collapse that killed 98 people. Today's guest, Dr. Randall Parkinson, is a coastal geologist currently with the Florida International University in Miami. He authored a paper that features some very interesting information about the Surfside Collapse. Dr. Parkinson, welcome back to the program. Well, thank you for having me back. Why were your research findings such a bellwether moment, and how did you come to make this discovery? Well, it, it, uh, it was a bellwether moment in that uh, I think, uh, well, I know that uh, for a decade or more, when uh, people thought about risks and vulnerabilities of the coastal zone to sea level rise, climate change, and so forth, we mostly focused on what we could see above ground things, storm surge, wind and wave damage, flooding. Uh, and we might have thought a little bit about infrastructure, uh, specifically uh, our stormwater systems and, and how they drain, because they drain to sea level for the most part, so they would be disrupted. But it really wasn't until that catastrophe uh, that, uh, at least in, in, in terms of my understanding and, and professional career, that we thought about uh, the risks and vulnerabilities in a whole new dimension that expanded from the traditional now to underground and particularly underground with regards to coastal structures and um, the structural elements of those that are built in low-lying areas proximal to the ocean, namely barrier islands, of which the coast of Florida has some 12,000 linear miles and millions and millions of people who live uh, our work in those areas. So um, in my background research to, to, to writing that paper, you know, I found out that that was like a what we call a knowledge cap. Uh, there were Coastal geologists working in one area and hydrologists working in another area and physical oceanographers and planning and zoning. and But everything was siloed. Uh, and in fact, because of that, it really I had to do some digging in order to put the puzzle together. And there are some, again, some gaps uh, that will, must be filled if we're going to really get a better handle on just what everything looks like today, uh, and what it should look like today. When doing some of the research for uh, our program and, and my discussions with you, two million people live on the barrier islands and live in units that are perhaps susceptible to problems. That's a big number. Uh, what are your thoughts as to what needs to be done when we take a look at those coastal zones as far as not just looking above, but understanding what's going on substructure. So, uh, great point, and uh, one that I have thought about quite a bit, and uh, uh, the uh, my initial thoughts on this turned out to be consistent with the uh, grand jury report that came out 
after the paper was published, and also with uh, the uh, Florida Engineering Society. They actually have a Surfside working group, and they produce a series of professional recommendations of what needs to be done. And these are all, I think, in alignment. Uh, and so you you need uh, so so there has to be a regulatory track. You know what are the rules uh, that must be followed in terms of the design, construction, uh, inspections, and so forth. Uh, but for someone living in a in a in a condominium or high rise, you know, with an HNO in charge, well, we know there's been problems, and this has been covered in the media in terms of the kind of money they have access to because of their dues and all of that. The bottom line is uh, folks need to uh, find out when was their building constructed. Uh, where are the, des- the design specifications for the building? What is underground? What are the elevations and, and what are the materials that were used to, uh, to build the uh, subterranean structures and often then that that structural element that holds the building in place there you know what were the con- conditions that were considered in the design um, what is the uh, inspection history if any of the building and uh, we know of course as you mentioned in the previous podcast that uh, often there's no requirements or there are 40 years and as you mentioned the ages of buildings that would mean that very few have actually come up so there may not have been any um, inspections to look at that, uh, but there might. Uh, also, another recommendation is to look at the maintenance records for the building. What is what have the maintenance problems been in the building, and any can any of them be associated with uh, corrosion and, and and structural failure and saltwater intrusion? Uh, so that uh, needs to be. Uh, done. So you have what can be done by the individual residents of a home or association. You've got legislative issues, but we also need to change the professional climate as well. I suspect that when inspections were conducted, they weren't inspected at, at, at the extent or looking at the right things necessarily for the new risks that we have, have become uh, more evident in, in time. So that means, you know, what does an inspection require? You know, what are the elements of that inspection? How will those different um, uh, elements say uh, spalling? Are you just looking at what's at the surface in terms of corrosion? Do you do some sort of uh, uh, um, uh, use a, a, a tool or sensor that allows you to look at the, the corrosion or, or, or the structural integrity of a pile that you can't see? So there's a third sort of leg in this, and all of these have to evolve uh, to a point where there's a coherent um, process to minimize risk. In our previous podcast, we talked about how you came to see the the speculation, hence the title, the speculation by many people as to what if, what if it were this, what if it were this? And that brought you into your research. Are there now people, peers, and others coming to you and saying, I've got a little speculation about this. What if? Are you getting that type of response or what type of response from peers? Uh, so 
I know that um, uh, some of my colleagues who specialize in, in elements of this discussion, of which I'm not a, a, an expert, say the structural civil engineering, uh, groundwater uh, modulation and, and dynamics and a porous substrate, all those, you know, they have written proposals um, to, for example, the National Science Foundation, uh, saying this is a serious information gap uh, and we need some basic science to say advance how we model groundwater uh, in the in the mixing zone between fresh and salt or how do we test uh, corrosion of uh, in this environment you know and what techniques you know not in the laboratory now but how can we develop technologies that can be brought out on site and deployed to get effective measurements of of uh, uh, corrosion and, and therefore uh, risk the level of risk. So this this um, well and and these you know these uh, Florida uh, in, engineering society they've come out with policies. So this has really triggered a lot of attention um, in the scientific community, in the engineering community, uh, in the governance community, uh, and and of course in the residential community. Really, really, uh, you know, like I said, a bellwether, a wash. I can't overemphasize uh, how uh, this has caught everybody surprisingly off guard, including myself. I would imagine one of the industries that has really paid attention to this would be the insurance industry. Can we expect to see some changes? I know that's not your area of expertise, but just looking at it overall, do you think we'll see changes within the insurance industry to address some of those older buildings? So, as you mentioned, I can't speak specifically to a concern about older buildings and risk to, say, sea level rise. But I can tell you that in general, uh, regarding the topic of climate change and sea level rise, the insurance industry and the lenders of money have been way ahead of, say, our, um, you know, our legislative initiatives at the federal, state, local level, you know, in terms of because this uh, is a potentially huge financial risk. So you can, I know, in the, on the general topic of sea level rise, that they are considering all of this. And, uh, and no doubt this may be a new um, uh, avenue of specific interest, uh, but uh, certainly they're, uh, um, they are well aware of this and actively seeking out, um, you know, a, 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 a means of sort of uh, remedying whatever new risk they have. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I lived on a barrier island and the escalating insurance rates was one of the determining factors that um, caused me to say, I'm moving inland. So I can only imagine that a lot of folks are going to watch this very, very carefully. As a geologist, what should those who are going to be doing the inspections or those who are going to be doing the regulatory aspects of this, what should they bear in mind when they look at or want to know What's going on under these buildings? Well, as a geologist, uh, 
you know, I would be looking at, and this would be just one, again, cog in the gear, but certainly one of the fundamental facts that would need to be uh, investigated. We have the technology to do that is to uh, acquire information about the groundwater system in, in and on which these buildings are uh, constructed. So that's simply the installation of monitoring wells. Uh, uh, we have the NOAA, as we talked about in the last episode, we've got very detailed sea level data, the availability of groundwater data, which may, which, which would be, you know, from rainfall and runoff and it accumulates on the island. We all see that it goes underground and usually it ends up on top of salt water because it's less dense and floats, but then the whole system is moving up and down with the tides. So there's mixing and, you know, what elevations uh, does, does that water table reach? What are the salinities in that water table? Uh, you know, this is, so the characterization of the groundwater system uh, is a fundamental element uh, and, uh, that will need to be quantified um, um, by the, whatever the, you know, the, whether it's a municipality or county, that will have to be done. It's something that has not been done, and it will be a critical element of any uh, attempt to assess risk and to figure out what your mitigation options are. For those who may not have tuned into our first episode where you uh, explained a bit about your findings, if I could recap, and, and I'm certainly not going to get them totally correct, but based on some of the information you found that sea levels were rising, and that yes. was somewhat documented, if not documented, by NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and that fresh water on top of the sea level, on top of the rising seas, you discovered was there, and it was fluctuating as well, and to use that term as well, uh, that was sort of a... a, a a discovery that was not an easy discovery through Miami Beach. No, uh, as you had mentioned, the, uh, the, the sea, information on sea level is readily available. Information on groundwater is, is readily available because the United States Geological Survey has all kinds of monitoring wells, but their mission is water uh, for drinking, for agricultural for uh, conservation land management, for industrial uses. So there, I could find no wells, and I checked all over the United States. They're just not in those areas of the coastline. Why? Because the water's salty. So you, you can't drink it. You can't use it for ag, et cetera. So they, they were, aren't really in those areas. And it was difficult to find any information on groundwater behavior elevation. I, I couldn't find anything on salinity. And that, as you mentioned, was specifically through the courtesy of the city of Miami Beach, who was collecting that data for an unrelated purpose. Are they still cooperating in your in your research? Is it ongoing? I, uh, I have not uh, 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 corresponded with them. Uh, they were... Uh, very cooperative. Um, I did have to pay the uh, reproduction charges, <laughs> but uh, um, but uh, and I sent them a copy of, of the, the paper of which they are uh, acknowledged as uh, being um, helpful in uh, completing the process and, and coming to some 
uh, conclusions that had not been drawn before. Those communications that happened with you, there are other communications, though, that are not happening. I know the Florida, as you mentioned, Florida Engineering Society has a, a committee, a group that is pulling together lots of information. What's your recommendation on getting all of these different entities to communicate better and share information so that we have a better understanding? Any recommendations? Wow. I think that, uh, you know, ideally, I don't know exactly how to do that, quite honestly, because, you know, if you just look in general in our attempt to uh, respond to climate change and that, it's been awkward at best. Uh, it's an enormous task, but I think that uh, there has to be leadership. You know, I, I have been involved in these uh, municipal vulnerability assessments where, say, a county or a city gets funding from the state to look into what their risks are. You know, are what is the problem and what are the solution? And uh, at that level, then... Uh, they begin to pull all the players together and gather information. Uh, and so it will take leadership. Uh, and uh, it's, I think my experience would be that local leadership is likely to uh, evolve more quickly. The larger the scale, the longer, more awkward and more problematic, say, at the state or federal level. But as we discussed, uh, you know, the state, uh, legislature is beginning to take up various bills that, that really have to do with regulation and oversight. Um, but there would have to be changes in building codes. And, you know, after Hurricane uh, Andrew hit, I, I, you know, which was what, 1992, it took, I think, nearly a decade to update the building codes with regards to wind and so forth. So we can anticipate, you know, something will take about that long as well, at least at the state level. You know, with my experience, uh, that seems to be where the leadership takes place, and rightly so. Not the final question, but sort of a, a wrap-up question. There's still a lot that we can talk about. Uh, if we were to look at better protecting our coastal zones, look at coming up with ways of inspecting and perhaps even mitigating, has anyone, have you, thought of what uh, the cost might be? Is it going to be an astronomical number? Where would the funds come from to pull all of these people together, pull everything together, and begin to build a plan or an approach to protecting the, the millions of people who are living in the zones? So this this is the uh, $100, or should I say the $100 billion question. You know, uh, in my experience with what what is generally called adaptive management. So as an example, when uh, the people started to take seriously sea level rise climate change, or let's just say of uh, the risk to high rise buildings through uh, saltwater intrusion, you know, the first thing that has to happen is do a risk. So what are the risks specifically, uh, you know, uh, and then what do the, how do those risks translate into vulnerability? Okay. The risk is Saltwater intrusion. What's the vulnerability? Uh, accelerated corrosion and structural failure. That's the second. The third then is what is your plan to address the issue? So many, many townships and counties and states have gone through the first three. The fourth one, however, is to implement that plan. And that 
is the stumbling block for the reason, well, several reasons. One is uh, the financial uh, costs to implement. Uh, and quite frankly, there will be uh, uh, some resistance uh, to that because it may impact various business interests. So it's not a clean process by any means. So the idea would be risk, vulnerability, plan, implement, and then every so many years go back and revisit everything and tune it up. Where does the money come from? Uh, that is, as I said, the $100 billion question. Uh, you know, as we've already seen in the news here, uh, it's, it's probably not coming from a homeowner association dues because these retrofits will be in the tens of millions potentially uh, and their dues are probably not that challenges all challenges as you pointed out it leads us to suspect there's going to be a lot of further discussion needed and i want to say thank you for taking time out of your schedule to join us here Uh, before i wrap up though i would imagine you're getting calls and getting a lot of inquiries not just from Florida, but uh, all over the United States, anywhere with a coastal zone, all over the world. Is, is that a fair statement? Well, I haven't got them all over the world. And uh, uh, I did get a, uh, a card in the mail from somebody located in Madison, Wisconsin, of all things, that I had some sort of random stuff about climate and condo. I couldn't really figure it out what it was all about, but that's not unusual. Uh, when you put yourself out there, which I think is extremely important. You know, the reason that I agreed to, to, to have this conversation is because of, you know, the purpose behind your show, which is to inform, um, you know, folks uh, about um, important topics uh, from a, 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 an informed perspective. And, and that is very, very important. And my mission as a scientist is uh, not just to publish technical papers, and, you know, but to get that information to, 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 to just regular folks who are trying to make decisions and understand the world around them. So I appreciate your invitation again. Again, my thank you for being here on the program. Will you come back at some point in the future as there are updates and new information to share? Absolutely. Uh, you know that I will be tracking those uh, as, as uh, you are as well. I'm keeping informed and in part to be able to then uh, distill that down into a, to something that uh, can be conveyed in a program like this. Happy to do so. And again, thank you so much for your interest and uh, for your audience attention. Great. Dr. Randall Parkinson, my pleasure to have had you on the program. And for our audience, rest assured, uh, if he says he is volunteering to come back, I'll get the hook out and bring him back on the stage because this is information, engaging information for All of those who live in the coastal areas of Florida and elsewhere, you need to know this. You need to have the conversation and begin to ask the questions because if there is no conversation, if no questions are asked, we have status quo. And we know what happens when we have status quo. We'll have another disaster. So I do appreciate that information and all that you have shared with us. The Florida Business Forum is dedicated to showcasing Florida businesses and CEOs of all sorts to promote their business or not-for-profit in the only business forum of its type in Florida. Thanks for tuning in, and remember, the Florida Business Forum is now accepting guest applications. Have a great day, everyone, and stay tuned for more business.